You are listening to the Climbing Advocate Podcast. I am your host, Peter Horgan. On this podcast, I will be chatting with folks who care deeply about the climbing environment to discuss the advocacy work that's happening beyond the crag. My aim is to connect more climbers to the important work that these advocates are doing day in and day out. From the small local crags, to the nation's iconic landscapes, and to the offices of our nation's capital, no crag is too big or too small to not have its interests represented. This show is brought to you in partnership with Access Fund. Since 1991, Access Fund has been keeping the crags, boulders, and alpine environments around the country conserved and cared for. Support Access Fund by visiting accessfund.org and by supporting your local climbing organization. Hey everyone, welcome to the latest installment of the Climbing Advocate Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Peter Horgan. On this episode, I was really psyched for, I had two gentlemen out of the Northeast uh, call in and talk about what they got going on up there. We had Seth Majowski with Craig Vermont and Mike Morin with the Access Fund. Before I jump into the episode, just a couple of business items here. I want to remind everyone that the early bird pricing for the Advocate Summit, uh, Access Fund's Advocate Summit being held in Seattle this year is now has now ended. The tickets are now full price, and they will be available until October 4th, one week prior to the beginning of the event. So if you plan on coming, jump on them as soon as you can. Pretty sure last year sold out, and I'm pretty sure that years previous have sold out as well. So make sure to get on, on that as soon as you can. And another awesome event that Seth told me about is the first ever Vermont Climbing Festival, which is happening September 20th of this month. Yeah, just here in a couple weeks, September 20th through the 22nd. And you can find tickets and more information about that event on vermontclimbingfestival.com. He states in the episode here that they got live music, they got a dino comp uh, clinics, they got Maddie Hong coming in for a presentation. So it's bound to be an awesome time, and I would love to have him have a great turnout for this first annual event. So if you want to find tickets for that, again, that's vermontclimbingfestival.com. So we traveled to the Northeast, figuratively traveled to the Northeast to chat with Seth and Mike. First was Seth. Seth has played an instrumental role in the development of a lot of climbing in Vermont and also in securing access to many of these areas of Vermont as well with his time spent with Craig Vermont. He has been with the organization for quite some time now and has held several positions during his time and is currently holding the spot as vice president. He has a long list of acquisition projects that he's been a part of since his time started with Craig Vermont, and the list is quite impressive, and he'll run us through all of that. And this reoccurring theme that he brings up a lot, along with Mike as well, is this uh, East versus West acquisition model. In the East, they are dealing with a lot of private land and conservation easements and buying property outright. Not, Not to say that doesn't happen in the West, but in the West, I think we're more tend to think of... Uh, work with federal land managers. In Vermont and New Hampshire, they each only have one national forest, which, much to my surprise, that, that actually is um, is a fact. And that was very surprising to me. So they're working with a lot of private, private landowners out there. And Seth's passion for Vermont climbing is very palpable. He loves, he loves the state. He loves the climbing there. And if you want to check out what he's psyched on, definitely check out the video Ground Up. It's a video that came out a handful of years ago about him and his buddy Travis putting up a lot of roots ground up in Vermont. It's it's pretty it's pretty rad. I think you guys would be psyched to check it out. So I'll link that up in the show notes so you all can check it out. 
On the second part of the episode, I chatted with Mike from the Access Fund. We talked about the Northeast on a much broader scale. You know, Mike was, or excuse me, Seth was just talking about Vermont, but Mike's uh, responsible for the whole region as Northeast Regional Director for Access Fund. We dove into some uh, projects he has going on in Massachusetts, in New York, in Maine, but the one that we really dove into, the area that's getting the most attention right now, is Rumney. Access Fund has the Restore Rumney campaign going on right now because their trails and staging areas were in dire need of a facelift. So they got some some great conservation work uh, underway up there to fix those trails and staging areas and address parking and other issues that's going on with the very much popular um, spot of Rumney. Mike's talks about having to retroactively do this stewardship work, and I've been hearing this theme of retroactive stewardship a lot lately, and it's a bummer that it has to happen this way, but none of these trails and staging areas were really equipped for climbing when they first started seeing climbing happening there. So they're retroactively fixing all these problems, but he does have some confidence here. He's starting to see a paradigm shift with land managers being more accepting of climbing, recognizing it as a legitimate use on the lands. So he hopes and he is, he is hopeful that there will be more proactive stewardship here coming down into the future. So I hope he is correct that will be good for our sport and the future of the sustainability of the sport. So without any further ado, without any more giving away any more details, let's jump into it with Seth and uh, Mike here towards the end of the episode. Hope you all enjoy. All right, folks, we are joined today by a couple of gentlemen coming out from the Northeast. We got Seth Majowski coming in from Vermont and Mike Morin with the Access Fund calling it in from New Hampshire. Welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, thanks for bringing me on. Hey, thanks for having us, Peter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we were talking before we recorded that this is the first episode covering the Northeast, so I'm super excited to talk to you both and cover another region. Seth, we'll, uh, we'll jump in with you first. You're with CRAG Vermont, which stands for Climbing Resource Access Group. I think it's a wonderful acronym for a LCO. Could you give us a few tidbits about your personal climbing history, um, where you've been, you know, where you're going, uh, and your history with Craig Vermont? Sure, absolutely. I uh, actually grew up in southern Vermont and uh, didn't really start climbing until I got into college and outing club at Worcester Polytechnic Institute down in Massachusetts. And we kind of got started at Crow Hill in Lemonster, Mass., which I'm sure anybody from the Northeast is probably going to have encountered that cliff at some point or another. And uh, pretty soon after that, I decided to come back to my home state and came into Vermont back in 2000 and started climbing actually a little bit in Vermont, but primarily in New Hampshire and New York State, the Adirondacks, because there just wasn't simply wasn't that many routes to do in Vermont at the time, believe it or not. And quickly, I ran into another character, Travis Peckham who was at the time heavily involved with Craig Vermont. And uh, he began to bring me around to the idea of projecting sport routes that were close to home. And it turns out that there's a lot of potential for sport routes in Northwestern Vermont. And uh, he was developing many of them. So I quickly got into developing and exploring some new cliffs with him and doing new route development over the years from 2006 onward. 
And he also brought me into the fold of Craig Vermont. I started out as secretary in 2006 and then moved on to president in 2012. And then I recently stepped down from president position and I wanted to continue my involvement with Craig. And it's a lot, we got a lot of exciting stuff going on. So I decided to remain in the vice president position and kind of let the next generation, uh, Chris Fior, become president and start to move things forward from there. But yeah, I've climbed uh, quite a bit all over the United States and Nevada and in the Northwest and California. And But uh, one thing I love about the Northeast is the variety of seasons. Um, I do a lot of ice climbing as well. So it's we have a great ice season up here, some of the best ice in the country, um, especially at Lake Willoughby could be arguably the best, some of the best ice climbing in North America. And we have a lot of great climbing that's less than 15 minutes from my house here in Vermont. And I don't like driving a whole lot, so <laughs> it's great to have some cliffs close by. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I read somewhere that you have a particular fondness for loose, dirty, and chassis rock. <laughs> Is that accurate? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a lot. Yeah, we have a lot of loose, dirty, and chassis rock in Vermont, you know. And uh, we have this kind of running joke about... Uh, what constitutes quality clean rock. And, you know, I've had people come to me after uh, doing a route that I've done and had, you know, three, four or five years beforehand. They say, this route is is a good route, but it's really dirty. And I said, you should have seen it before the hundred other ascents that it got before you got on it. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all, it's all part and parcel to, to exploring and doing new stuff. And I think that's just my, my psych is really uh, into doing, exploring new things and just going places people haven't been before. I, I tend to not repeat routes very often. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'll either in, even establish routes. So I'll do a, you know, go do something like a recompense on cathedral in New Hampshire and, you know, one, two times is good for me, but then I want to move on to the next thing. And, on some level, every climber is going to find a place where they can't, you know, continue to get stronger and climb 513, 514. So you're going to run out of the roots at the grade you're at. So the, the only options are to get stronger or to put in roots that you can actually do. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and fortunately in Vermont, you know, you there's plenty of stuff that wasn't, I just had the pure happenstance of being here during the golden age of Vermont climbing, if you will, Vermont rock climbing, I should say, mm-hmm. which has seemed to have been since 2000 and when people started actually uh, accepting that. Uh, sport routes were acceptable practice in the area here. Sure. So, yeah, it seems like. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like New Hampshire can kind of overshadow Vermont a little bit. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, you know, I, I don't want to diss Mike's area over there. But yeah, you know, yeah. Never quite have have the variety of rock we have here, uh-huh. <laughs> and I use rock and rock in quotation marks, uh, spanning right. the, the the difference from dirt all the way up to pristine granite, <laughs> like you'd have in Conway. <laughs> well, but, uh, yeah, it's got a much more established, uh, far more established rock climbing history than Vermont and New Hampshire, and many many more roots i would say but there's definitely a special flavor to over in in vermont and Mm -hmm. we we also do not have quite as many longer roots i think our real strength is in short single pitch uh sport climbing basically but well i gotta tip my hat to you seth uh i watched um a really cool video you guys made a handful of years back called ground up i'll be make i'll make sure to um, put that in the show notes so everyone else can can watch this amazing eight minute video of you and, and Travis, right? Yep, Travis Beckham. He's yep. also, I might add, the author of the uh, 
2012 Vermont Rock Guidebook, uh, Tough Schist, which is a really clever nice. name. Really <laughs> clever. Yeah. You guys are clever. Craig, Vermont, and Schist. Yeah, yeah. right. I, I got to give uh, Travis credit for a lot of these acronyms and names. He's nice. pretty good at coining <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, this video ground up that documents you and Travis uh, just really getting after it and taking advantage of the rock that is in Vermont and putting up a lot of new roots, ground up, you know, um, as the uh, title of the video would, would demonstrate. And man, that is some bold, badass stuff. Like one scene in particular, you clip a quick draw to a drill bit that you just drilled a hole with. And I thought to myself, I'm like, if that drill comes out of that hole, oh my God. And sure enough, like 10 <laughs> seconds later, you take a huge ride with the drill hanging from your like bold seth that's badass <laughs> well just to, just to clarify uh peter for a second is that uh, uh the drill bit did not actually come out of the hole it actually okay. came out of the drill itself and mm. um this is one of the things that as an engineer i kind of feel uh silly after the fact because it seemed quite obvious after the fact but if you look at an sds drill bit uh they're 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 very difficult to remove from the drill if you try to pull them out by hand Mm -hmm. You have to actually release the chuck and pull it back and then release. It's like a dual hand handed action. Mm -hmm. So it never occurred to me that, you know, the quick draw itself would actually push the release back when you put right. a slight bit of weight on it and then yep. cause the whole thing to release. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, technical yeah. detail after the fact seems painfully obvious, literally. Uh -huh. But uh, at the time, uh, did not quite occur to me when you're desperate and trying to crimp on some steeper five nine terrain and you know just mm -hmm. trying to stay on there to get a get a hole in you kind of start to start to lose your mind a little bit <laughs> yeah well, hindsight's always 2020 right that's right <laughs> <laughs> well mike how about yourself what's uh what's your personal climbing history you're in new hampshire now but i know you spent some time in colorado and you've worked yeah. at the access fund for a while why don't you give us a background on yourself sure yeah actually i uh, grew up in maine and that's where actually i got my my first introduction to mountains and, and rock climbing a little bit. I was, um, I grew up, uh, in old town, Maine or Bradley, Maine more specifically, but, um, grew up, uh, spending time on Mount Katahdin, um, and Baxter state park hiking with my family. And so that was kind of my first introduction to mountains and mountaineering and that sort of game. And, um, when I was about a junior in college, I think, um, uh, a friend took myself and another buddy out climbing in Acadia. Um, and we climbed South Bubble Mountain, um, up a relatively um, easy route that um, I've done since. It's funny to go back and climb things you climbed when you first started climbing. You know, at the time, it felt incredibly exposed and 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 kind of just um, just harrowing. Um, but we're going back. It was you know, it's a two pitch route that's relatively easy. To, um, but just you know, that uh, that whole life experience and coming back around to things you've done in the past is kind of interesting. But but I, so I got, I, uh, my first exposure to climbing was there, but didn't really take hold until a couple of years later, I moved out West, um, after school, um, pursued, uh, being a park ranger for a while. And a friend that I met, um, working in parks, uh, introduced me to climbing. I was, um, I went to Colorado, started hiking a lot of the high peaks and started looking for more interesting ways to get up them. And that was kind of the natural progression, kind of that you know, starting with, with simple hikes in the mountains to you know, scrambling and then wanting to continue that, that progression. So really cut my teeth climbing in Colorado and then um, had the opportunity to uh, travel around the country for the Access Funds conservation team program for three years and 
really explore um, all the amazing climbing that uh, the U.S. has to offer. And um, between that travel and then coming back to the Northeast to visit family and incorporating, you know, climbing trips into those that that uh, those family visits, um, really uh, learned or rediscovered in some ways my my old home and became very passionate about. Uh, the Mount Washington Valley here in in, in New Hampshire and um, other other iconic climbing areas. And in fact, one of my favorite places to go um, is actually Acadia. So kind of bringing it right back around to the first place I ever climbed. So um, yeah, kind of that's kind of my 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 climbing uh, history or experience in a nutshell. How far are you from Acadia? About four and a half hours or so. Um, yeah, so from a New England standard, that's a, that's a haul. But um, <laughs> uh, and I have to admit, much like Seth, I uh, I do tend to uh, be a bit of a, a homebody. I, stand, I try, like to stay close to home um, on my weekends, uh, especially with, with all the travel I do for the Access Fund. But that's yeah. one of the one of the things I love about living here in uh, North Conway is I have Cathedral Ledge and Whitehorse Ledge, as well as you know a myriad of other uh, lesser known but very quality crags throughout the valley. Um, as well as amazing uh, winter ice and snow climbing, um, you know, 15, 20 minutes from my house. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a pretty, pretty spectacular spot, pretty special place to be able to live and work for sure. Nice. Yeah, right on. Are you much of an ice, uh, ice climber? I am. Yeah, I started ice climbing out in Colorado. Again, it was kind of this skill set I was aiming to learn to, you know, tackle bigger routes in the mountains. I never envisioned myself being just a pure ice climber, but um, you know, like anything, I guess you kind of get into it and you start to be kind of hooked to these, um, different, different, um, climbing mediums and, um, started going to places like Uray and exploring the front range and Lincoln Falls. And so when I came, when I came back here, I had the opportunity to really, um, get into the, the North Conway ice climbing scene. I kind of dove right in. So, um, it's been, cool. it's been great. I mean, it's, it's, uh, much like in Vermont, we probably have some of the best, um, accessed, um, ice climbing in the country. I mean, it's, uh, pretty spectacular. You can walk 15 minutes to pretty world-class, um, multi-pitch ice, you know, 20 minutes from my house. Nice. Mm-hmm. And so you started with the access fund, uh, on the conservation team. What is your position now? So I'm the Northeast regional director, Northeast regional director. And that, I mean, that covers everything. Where's like, how far South do you go? So, um, generally down to New Jersey and Pennsylvania, okay. that would be kind of the Southern extent of mm-hmm. the region that I work. Okay. Right on. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. We'll jump back to you here in a little bit, but we're going to get started with Seth and his work with Craig Vermont. When and how did I uh, Craig Vermont form? Uh, Craig Vermont formed in 2003. Um, basically what happened was we had a, a small local cliff called Lower West Bolton. It's about a 90 foot cliff that was pretty popular among climbers to TR. And basically what happened was a private landowner wanted to sell off and subdivide the property that contained Lower West Bolton. And the climbers came, came to him and said, is there any way we can take ownership of this cliff? Um, you know, and he was totally amenable to donating the cliff to climbers, but there was no vehicle, uh, in other words, an organization in which to take possession of the cliff legally. So Craig Vermont was created as a 501c3 to take the take ownership of Lower West Bolton specifically. 
and then it kind of blossomed from there. Uh, it basically moved moved into to purchasing the Bolton Quarry, which is a popular ice climbing locale in Bolton, Vermont. Uh, WI five routes up to 100 feet tall, and we want to move move forward with the purchase of that in 2005. And then we've kind of moved from there into a whole bunch of projects since, and and the organization has just grown from that from that initial seed of Lower West Bolton. Gotcha. So the that initial landowner for uh, Lower West Bolton, he sold it, ended up selling it to you guys, not donating it. Donating it is that correct? He he did donate it actually. Uh, it's a, it's about a five acre parcel, and given where what we've seen in the intervening years here, that was actually quite generous of him to sell that or give it to us rather instead of actually selling it to us, which was great. That's awesome. Reading over Craig Vermont's mission, there's a statement here under one of the bullet points that says current and future access will be fostered through outright purchases of property, obtaining conservation easements or securing landowner agreements. What I gather from that is you're largely working with private landowners and other conservation organizations, not so much uh, like federal manager, federal land managers. To much right. to my surprise, there's only one national forest in Vermont. Yeah, absolutely. We only have the. It's, I think it's just to back up for a second. It's quite different model than the west west coast of the United States about totally. about who the yep. landowners are here. Um, Green Mountain National Forest is our national forest in Vermont, and by Western standards, it would probably account. To, it'd probably be considered a very small national forest. <laughs> Uh, sure. And then predominantly, most of the land is owned by private private owners or the state of Vermont. Um, so we take sort mm-hmm. of a threefold approach to try to conserve access to cliffs. We, like I say, we would buy it outright, or we would work with the private landowner to establish some sort of permanent agreement, or we work under the umbrella of the state of Vermont Agency of Natural Resources to facilitate access on state lands. Uh, yeah, I think that's really cool. Just a really great model to conserve climbing, preserve climbing um, rather than working with federal land managers. I mean, I'm sure they both have their pros and cons, I'm sure, but um, I think it's a pretty, pretty great model. We'll, we'll jump sure. into that here in a little bit. And, but before that, let's touch base on some of the major accomplishments that you've been involved with, uh, with Craig Vermont over the, the last, I don't know, 15 years, 13 years or so. Yeah. Sure, absolutely. And I think um, just going back to the point you just made, Peter, about the three sort of threefold landowner model, um, I think a lot of these these projects that I've been involved with have fallen into one of those categories. And as I talk about them, I'll just refer back to that because I think it might be helpful to other access organizations to kind of see this the way, different ways you can do these things and how Craig has approached it over the years. So, yeah, I think uh, I got involved with Craig, as I said, in 2006. And um, at the time, Travis Peckham was president of the organization, and it looked like we were going to be able to get an option agreement to purchase Upper West Bolton Cliff. Um, as you can see, the Bolton Cliffs are named very, uh, very uh, cleverly, right? Upper, lower, upper, upper. <laughs> it was a very creative naming process. But nevertheless, Upper West Bolton is higher up the valley than Lower West Bolton. And uh, Travis was able to uh, get the la- two landowners who own two halves of the cliff to agree to subdivide their parcels and create a single 18-acre parcel with that with that cliff on it and sell it to Craig Vermont. And this was in 2009. 
And so with major financial backing from the Conservation Alliance, I wrote a grant with them and a couple other grants or other various nonprofits. We were able to conserve, basically purchase and conserve that cliff in perpetuity in 2009. And Upper West, just to give some perspective, is about is up to 200 feet tall and it's uh, a mixture of sport and traditional roots and some of the classic crack Vermont. Crack Crack climbing in Vermont is actually at the cliff. Uh, people, your listeners who've been in Vermont, which is probably a very small subset, know the rose and the thorn, but that's the, the home of those two. So that was in 2009. And we had really good success. Travis and I kind of worked together a lot on that. I was as secretary and he was as president. So we went forward and purchased another crag called the Carcass Crag which is a smaller cliff. It was only a three acre subdivision from a neighbor and connected to our quarry property. So we went, we had to go through uh, a subdivision and a development review board review for connecting the small parcel to our adjacent land, which happened to be right next door, which was great. Um, and the Carcass Crag is a small, relatively small cliff. It's uh, 15 sport routes, but they're really classic. And then actually, from a historical perspective, it was the first sport climbing crag in this area that was developed. Um, and it was an, an interesting project with an interesting landowner uh, to get just three acres. But it kind of illustrated to me how all the moving pieces that needed to be done to make this happen. And then in 2012, um, you may, your, your listeners may recall back in 2011, we actually had Hurricane Irene come through the New England area and really caused a lot of devastation to roads and, and slopes and a lot of fresh landslides. Well, it turns out that uh, Crag, Vermont has a long driveway at the, to access our Bolton Quarry, and um, that was actually destroyed in a flood the following year, actually, it survived Hurricane Irene, but then got destroyed in 2012. And that was a major effort for us on the uh, sort of stewardship end of our mission to restore the driveway so people could access it because it was a substantial amount of money. And the access fund stepped in with a, uh, a loan to help us to complete the work and make it happen real quick. But that was a whole nother aspect of Craig Vermont's mission that we got familiar with quickly, stewarding a, a road, which is not something that climbers often think about. Um, and then in 2016, we had one of the uh, one of our most successful, I would say one of our most successful uh, milestones, but it's very underrated in that we signed an agreement with the state of Vermont Agency of Natural Resources to uh, to permit climbing on state lands. And most people would say, well, you know, it was not it was not explicitly banned prior to this agreement. But uh, one thing with uh, state lands managers, and I think this is probably universal across the country, is if they aren't familiar with a particular activity or they have a model by which to apply like um, a bureaucratic process to control that activity, they, they tend to take the easy road, which is to actually just ban the activity from their property. Um, so over the years, we've had various back and forth with the state over, uh, you know, things that they perceived as slights or, or, or misuses of the property. And we finally, after it took us eight years actually to get an agreement together with the state of Vermont, but we finally, finally signed it in 2016. And it basically, Craig Vermont was fundamentally in, involved in the drafting of the agreement to define what is, is allowed and what is not allowed on state lands and with, with regard to climbing. And I think that was a, a huge success. That's just really kind of, Kind of not as not as exciting as purchasing a cliff or uh, gaining access to another cliff, but it really 
has has meant that the state comes to crag before they make any decisions with regard to climbing on state lands in Vermont. Awesome. And some of the cliffs that are on state lands in Vermont are Smuggler's Notch, which is pretty much a nationally known, well, Smuggler's Notch and Lake Willoughby are both nationally known ice climbing venues, like known all over North America, I think. And also Marshfield Ledge, which is a big granite cliff reminiscent of Cathedral and Whitehorse. So these are pretty major um, climbing areas, and they're all now basically under the umbrella of this agreement we created with the state. And every year we meet with the state to follow up and see what their concerns are. And it's been a it's been a really great relationship so far. And uh, I think we have we've just had a, been able to smooth things over a lot better with them since we created that. So um, that's been very helpful. And again, it was a different sort of agreement and level of commitment that Craig Craig had not engaged in before. 2016. So it was kind of neat to do that. Mm-hmm. And then I think um, 2017, we did our first um, sort of lease partnership on a crag with uh, Lone Rock Point and the Archdiocese of Vermont, which is uh, was a really interesting project too, in that we basically are uh, essentially leasing a cliff from a private landowner and having yearly yearly updates with them and have a management plan and uh, they've been very pleased since 2017 when we opened Lone Rock Point, which is a really unique limestone crag, actually, that overhangs Lake Champlain. And uh, it's been quite popular, but climbers have been abiding by the agreement rules that we came up with. And uh, the diocese has been very happy with the whole process. And now they're actually talking about potentially opening up some more of the cliff to us, not us in Crag, Vermont, but climbers in general to develop further roots at Lone Rock, which is awesome. And then I think the final, my, my tenure in Crag that was kind of book as president was bookended by doing the Bolton Dome project in 2018, purchasing Bolton Dome, which is by far Crag, Vermont's biggest project to date. We uh, took ownership of 48 acres and a home uh, to get a very famous old cliff that was very popular in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and has been closed for the past 30 years to get ownership of that. And Craig Vermont took ownership of that in 2018, subdivided the home and sold that, which was an entirely new experience for Craig to be a, to be a landlord, essentially, <laughs> for a short period and resell the home. But we were able to accomplish that with major support from the Access Fund. And I got to give Mike here a lot of credit. He, he, he was the one who was willing to trust Craig, that Craig Vermont would actually be a good steward of the access funds loan money and uh, sort of permitted things to go through. And he even came over and visited the Craig before we purchased. And, you know, frankly, the Craig looked like quite a heap at the time, lots of lichen and dirt. And uh, but he took the risk on it and we opened the glyph in 2019. And now there's uh, something like 50 very classic climbs already established at the cliff. I think 25 or 30 new routes have been developed there since the cliff opened. Because of the because of this, there was no sport climbing ethic back when the cliff closed, so it opened up a whole bunch of new terrain, which has been uh, really taken advantage of by climbers. And some really great classic routes have been put in since the cliff was open, and uh, it's been very popular initially and very successful project. So, nice. you know, that kind of brings us up to 2019 and where we're at today. And you know, our, our uh, as I moved to the vice president spot, we've, our goal has been to try to get the access fund paid back on their loan as soon as we can and also put permanent easements in place on the Bolton Dome to kind of protect that forever, regardless of the organizational state of Craig, Vermont. So, 
All right. That's quite the list there. Yeah, it's been a it's been a great great experience, great tenure. I've, my personal, I, I guess, just just to not to use use a lot of time here, but my personal uh, personally, I felt like I've grown in a leadership role. You know, being involved in this nonprofit. I mean, my actual, I'm in in my day job. I'm an electrical engineer, and I kind of sit in my own little lane and do my thing. So it's really great to have an opportunity to do something that's absolutely nothing like what I do for work every day. So. Anybody who's thinking about jumping into a nonprofit, it's really what you want to make of it. There's no, there's no handbook to how to do to how how to do things. You just, I just say, get up and do it, and and make it make things happen, and people will follow along. So it's been a great experience. Awesome. Well, you're certain certainly making things happen. Um, to back up a little bit, I wanted to touch base back on the carcass crag real quick. Sure, absolutely. It's a pretty funny backstory on how that crag was discovered do you mind uh yeah. would you mind sharing that story real quick sure so uh around about early 2000s like i said we had uh the quarry bolton quarry which is a popular ice climbing locale in the early 2000s and to actually get top ropes set up on these big ice pillars you walk around the outside of the uh the outside of the quarry and then you know find some trees up top and create an anchor and drop your line in and uh one of the founding members of Crag, Derek Doucette, actually had his dog along with him when he was going to set up a top rope, and the dog took off up into the woods above the quarry. And anybody who's familiar with New England climbing in general realizes that there's a, the, the other major salient difference between New England climbing and Western climbing is there's a lot of vegetation. You cannot see more than 40, 50, 100 feet in the woods for the most part in New England. So it can very well be that there's a 80 or 90 foot cliff that's only 200 yards from where you're standing and you can't even see it. So actually Derek's dog discovered the cliff because he smelled a dead deer that had fallen off of the cliff and was immediately over there trying to devour the carcass. And once Derek tracked him down, he said, oh, wow, look at there's there's this there's this large cliff here that looks like it has a lot of potential for sport development. And again, it was right on the cusp of the sort of sport climbing revolution in Vermont. So he immediately started to look at the classic line on the cliff, which is called Who's Your Daddy? A uh, nice 12C sport bolted line there. And it kind of went from there. And hence the name, the carcass crag obviously comes out of this poor deer that launched off the top of the cliff and, <laughs> and, and, and caused the discovery of the cliff. <laughs> yeah. Very aptly named. <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. Um, next point is when you were talking about the state of Vermont agency of, the, of natural resources, it reminded me of recreational use statutes and working with so many private landowners out East. I'm sure that climbing has got to be listed in Vermont's rec use statute. Right. So actually that's a, a really interesting um, uh, addendum. I might add to this discussion about the state of Vermont. Actually, there's a specific statute in Vermont that specifically calls out rock and ice climbing as a non-liability sport on a private, privately held piece of property. So in other words, if you are a private landowner, you're explicitly called out to not be held liable in the event that there's an accident involving rock or ice climbing on your property. Mm -hmm. um, and that's been absolutely essential for us to be able to, you know, work with private landowners in general. If that didn't exist, I don't think we would yep. have been able to even necessarily even purchase some of these cliffs just because of the, the, the politics associated with that. Um, but we did actually run into a situation um, in which there's some 
cliffs that are actually on municipal land. In other words, land that's owned by a town. Right, right. And they, the town is not ex actually explicitly covered by that statute in Vermont. And what we did is we tried to go to the state legislature and push forward to change that statute such that it would include municipalities. But it was really pushed back against by uh, uh, a lobbyist for the for lawyers and so forth because they didn't want they wanted to be want to be able to basically sue anybody at any time. Mm -hmm. um, so they don't like to add things that are explicitly called out in the state statute as being non-liable. So uh, that was just an interesting little side note to the uh, liability issue that we've worked on over the years, too. I, I got to give credit to one of our uh, board members, Dick Katzman, who spent many hours talking with legislatures. They got a they got a bill actually pushed out to the floor of the uh, pushed in put into committee to be able to, uh, to to add municipalities to the the statute, and it never actually made it to a floor vote. And I think it was just because of the pushback. It's it's hard to say. It's you're getting into political domains here that I'm not aware of. So. <laughs> well, if you need any advice on that, uh, Brian Tickle, I'm sure, can can fill you in on all that. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, maybe we'll take another stab at it with some more uh, more experienced folks at that helping us. We might be able to make push it forward again. So definitely, yeah, he'd be he'd be a good guy to talk to. Let's see. Moving forward, you guys own several of these cliffs, mm -hmm. and then there's conservation easements held by uh, the Vermont Land Trust, and that's piqued my interest. I work for the Crested Butte Land Trust here where I live. Okay. So these, these partnerships with, with land trusts really, you're, uh, really catch my attention. Could you explain your partnership with the Vermont Land Trust? Sure. So I, what, what we've always thought about with Craig Vermont, if we just look at it from a, from a sort of made-up perspective, is Craig Vermont is a small nonprofit, all-volunteer board. You know, we don't, we don't carry a lot of money in our bank account, for lack of a better way of putting it. And we always thought of it as, you know, we are we're taking on more and more responsibility as we purchase these uh, cliffs, you know, more and more, uh, I guess, more more and more fi financial responsibility in terms of the tax burden we have to pay to the towns, um, how much liability insurance the board should carry. All these things begin to add up. And the way we keep looking at it is that there there could be a day where it's like Craig Vermont may cease to exist as an organization. We have to be realistic about it, maybe because uh, I would hope that it wouldn't happen, but maybe because climber interest saps in doing these kind of access issues, or we just can't get enough people, or, you know, the, the composition of the board is such that people are not as enthusiastic about it. And so we've always been like, we want to have a permanent model by which we can guarantee that these cliffs will be able to be accessed by climbers in essentially perpetuity. I mean, perpetuity is a long time. Uh, so what we did is our, our kind of uh, our kind of founding premise has been to say, hey, let's talk to a larger organization and make sure that there's a large, larger organization sort of backing us up that will enable access to these cliffs in a much longer time frame than Craig Vermont could necessarily be a be available and able to commit to defending our access to these cliffs. And the Vermont Land Trust is the obvious, uh, the obvious partner in that regard because they own many, many, many easements on thousands and thousands of acres in Vermont. They have a full legal staff that enables them to enforce access to these properties and also enforce uh, development restraints. And, and so it, just, it was just a very logical organization to choose. And, uh, you know, they're full nonprofit with a staff of 50 
Um, and they work closely with us to make sure that we put when we when we develop an easement with them on one of our properties, we establish a um, we look at all aspects of the property. You know, obviously, we're not going to develop the property, um, but we also look at the natural communities, the ecological uh, species that are on the property and develop management plans to ensure that those are all going to be protected and, and, and are compatible with the climbing activities that are going on on, on the property. So, you know, we. We, we work with them to do to establish the easement and then the implication there going forward is that they're going to legally defend that easement. So say Craig Vermont ceases to be an organization and the town takes ownership of a property in lieu of property taxes being paid, the town could sell the property to another private landowner, but there's still an easement encumbrance upon the property that always will allow climbing to it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and the Vermont Land Trust is obligated with their legal staff to defend that access as part of the easement process that we've developed. So it really made sense to just put these in place on every one of our properties. They can be quite expensive to establish an easement, but we feel that the the ups the upside to it just outweighs that expense. And mm-hmm. you know, it, it can be difficult to fundraise to get an easement because it's hard to explain to climbers what you're actually doing there right um, and why it's valuable but uh, so usually what we try to do is roll that expense into the project budget up front if we're purchasing a cliff but we have been able to you know retro retro establish easements later on down the road through fundraising it's just a lot more of a difficult sell with climbers but it's a very important piece especially in the northeast you know, with the with the volume of private land, privately held lands. Right. Well, yeah. Long story short, you guys hold you guys hold ownership of the property. The Vermont Land Trust has the easement, and right. that easement is in perpetuity. If Craig were to dissolve and the town would take ownership, or another uh, landowner comes in and purchases the property, that easement is still holds true. And it does not go away. The owner, the new owner knows that this property is under easement and cannot be amended or changed. Right. That's correct. So it would be, it's essentially would be like a lien on the property when the new landowner takes ownership, they're going to be fully aware that they are obligated to allow climbers access to this property. And, you know, whatever happens with regard to the sale of the property, that should be factored in the decision. But Exactly. Uh, we we don't. Craig Vermont doesn't retain any legal staff. Um, we could not afford that level of <laughs> of organizational encumbrance. But uh, so our idea is to sort of we're, we're sort of essentially um, uh, outsourcing this to the Vermont Land Trust, our legal protection essentially. Right. Yep. Was there is there like a stewardship endowment in uh, included in that upfront cost? We usually try to, yeah. So, what with with the uh, deals we've made with the Vermont Land Trust, there's usually, what's included in their pricing is an is an endowment to cover potential legal expenses down the road. So, yeah, mm-hmm. and we like I say, we try to budget this into our project costs up front. Um, and I'd say on a little side note is the Bolton Dome. We had some expenses that exceeded our anticipated expenses project expenses so it's been it's been one thing that's kind of fallen off the end here so we're going to keep trying to put that back in the on the in front of climbers and try to make them understand that this is an important piece of it because we're going to need to fundraise some additional funds to make it happen there but uh well right on yeah you guys have some really great uh, avenues to uh, pursue permanent access to your cliffs and you just got to do it differently than than out west and my hat's off to you for taking advantage of those yeah, I think um, you, you know the out west. Just one more comment on the 
uh, difference between the East and the West in terms of these projects is, yeah, you know, it may be difficult. I could totally understand working with the uh, U.S. Forest Service would be very bureaucratic and time consuming and take years to accomplish anything. However, it's one entity you're talking to versus every time we approach a private landowner in Vermont here, you know, you have the personal foibles of that private landowner to kind of understand before you can even move forward with getting them to understand what you actually want to do. Sure. And we've had some very patient people on the board that have just worked private landowners to get them on board with what our goals are and to get them on board with a project for a long time, uh, specifically in the Bolton Dome project. Dick Katzman, another a board member, worked for probably about five to 10 years to actually get the landowner around to selling the property to us. So it's it's quite a long time that we spent cultivating relationships before we can even move forward with making an offer on a property, I would say. Of course, yeah. So, you know, in that regard, it's kind of quite different from, uh, I think, the situation out West in general. Yeah, even though it's different, doesn't mean it's it's easier, you know, so to speak. Right. So, right on. Um, well, now that you guys have had all these major accomplishments over the past, uh, I don't know, a couple decades. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been quite long now yeah. when I look back on it. <laughs> these places don't manage themselves then. Once you secure them, they, you know, they got to be managed and ongoing work needs to, needs to happen. What, uh, what is the continuing work that's going on right now with a couple of the projects like Bolton Dome, for example, or the Lone Rock Point? Right, yeah. I think um, just to speak to your first point, once the, once Craig Vermont owns the cliff, it doesn't. The obligations don't don't end at that point. You know, we have stewardship activities and maintaining trails and uh, property taxes to pay every year, year after year. So, right, and it's a lot. It's a lot less. Again, a lot less compelling to get people to donate money to pay property tax bills than it is to buy a new cliff. So that's actually some of the hard, you know, in it, grunt work, if you will, in between these great projects that often is like the long grind work that is, is a lot more difficult in a sense than doing a large project. Um, so in, in, with regard to the specifics of what's going on right now, we have uh, the Bolton Dome project, which we, as I said, we opened the cliff in March of 2019. And uh, we still owe the Access Fund a substantial amount of money for their loan that they so generously gave us to complete the project. So we need to continue to pay that loan off. We're hoping to complete that as soon as possible. And we also would like to raise additional funds to establish this permanent conservation easement, as we discussed with the Vermont Land Trust, because that's a very important piece of this property. And uh, so the Dome project has been very successful, but we still have quite, quite a few steps actually to get through before we can sort of put a final bow on that package and say it was a completed project. Um, with regard to Lone Rock Point, we basically every year we continue to develop our relationship with the diocese of, uh, that owns the cliff. And we would like to get them around to opening more of the crag for root development. And I think that after the trial year or two that we've seen, they've seen climbers at the cliff, they've become much more amenable to this idea. And I think it, it really speaks to how important it is to have climbers you know, abide by the rules and, and, and just follow any sort of specific wishes of the landowner and just maintain that really positive relationship because it can really unlock some more resources when we, when we all as a group get together and, and just try to try to make the best image, uh, image of climbers as responsible users of a property. It really helps us. It helps us, meaning climbers in general, it also helps Craig establish these relationships, use them as examples for future projects. Mm -hmm. 
and to show that climbers are responsible users and that they can be trusted to be uh, on the property of a private landowner. So yeah, we continue to maintain a good relationship with the diocese and, and at Lone Rock Point. And in Bolton, we actually have a, another potential large project uh, coming in possibly for 2020. We're still trying to work. We have, again, another private landowner that's very cantankerous and has his own own special needs, if you will, with regard to his property. And we need to figure out how we're going to make that happen. Um, so we're hoping we can to get this last, which is the, pretty much the last large remaining schist cliff in the Bolton area, conserved in some fashion. So we're trying to work again with our BLT partners and, and, a, and a potential private landowner to purchase the property. And hopefully we can make that happen in 2020. So hopefully you'll see some more details um, in the future on that one. And then the, fu- the final point we keep working on is uh, working with this agency of natural resources at the state of Vermont to improve the climbing infrastructure. Uh, and what I mean by climbing infrastructure is parking, trails, and trail development, and um, I guess those would be the two primary ones. I was going to say put uh, toilet facilities and so forth, but that actually hasn't been as big of an issue on in Vermont. Um, just a lot of these cliffs again have no no developed trails, so we have we see a lot of braiding out to the cliffs as dead as a uh, as wind throw trees fall, you know, you get further trail braiding and so forth. So we want to work to formalize these trails with the state. And that's, a, as you can expect, quite a bureaucratic process to, to establish a trail even on state land. So we're really trying to push on them to, to formalize them, sign them, and also establish formalized parking areas. Because that's actually, I think, into the future is going to be a lot of issue at many climbing areas is the parking situation. Um, you can see is, and I'm sure Mike is, I know he's seeing this in New Hampshire with Rumney that, you know, we, they've added over the years, many, uh, many additional parking lots and they just continue to fill up. And as the popularity of the sport grows and, you know, I think that's going to be one of the, one of the dominant issues for climbing access is just dealing with where are we putting all these cars and how are we getting people to and from the crack? You know, I would love to see personally a nice train stop at every cliff in in New England, but uh, I don't know if that's going to happen any day soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's a question of capacity. I think you know you can keep building parking lots, but when is a when is a spot just kind of at its capacity? Right. Maybe Mike, you can touch touch on that when we get into Rumney here in a few minutes. But uh, well, right on. Thanks, Seth. That was a ton of awesome information, and feel free to definitely keep me posted on on your current projects. And I'll be happy to plug in a little nugget here and there as, uh, as things develop. Yeah, it absolutely. One more uh, additional thing, Peter, is that uh, Crag is actually hosting the first annual Vermont climbing festival on September 20th. Ah, yes. Thanks for reminding me. And yeah. if you could make a pitch for that, I think it's going to be great. We're going to have live band. We're going to have Maddie Hong from the North face talk, doing a presentation. Nice. And we're going to do a uh, dino competition and just a bunch of people there that will help you locals, local climbers that can help people familiarize themselves with the crags around Bolton. So I think it'll be a great opportunity for people who are not familiar with Vermont climbing to kind of get a taste of it and get to know the cliffs. And I encourage anybody to show up and just check out VermontClimbingFestival.com if you want more information on that. All right. September 20th. I will. Yeah, I'm more than happy to put the plug in for that. Prime, and, prime time for climbing in New England. Yeah. Ball. Ball. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Right on. Thanks, Seth.
Yeah, I appreciate your work, Peter, on the program here. And uh, yeah. thanks for bringing me on. Yeah, you bet. All right, Mike. What's yeah. uh, what's going on in your world? What's going on Access Fund Northeast? Well, kind of as Seth touched upon, you know, a lot of my work here in the Northeast uh, really centers on working with private landowners, um, you know, much like um, over in Vermont here in New Hampshire, um, we have you know, one national forest, the White Mountain National Forest. Um, and so, and it's kind of, and that's kind of the case all around New England, you know, um, we have public land scattered about, um, not a lot of federal public land though, but it's, it's here and there. But so a lot of my work is working with um, private landowners to figure out either if, if there's an opportunity to purchase a property, um, you know, to, to preserve it or, you know, examine our um, other avenues like um, you know, access agreements where we can kind of uh, address landowner concerns, whether it's around liability or how climbers are using the, the, the property to, uh, to kind of make them comfortable with allowing access. Um, and so um, really my focus this year over, the, over 2019 has been really um, we're pursuing some pretty exciting projects, um, both in really kind of the, the three places that come to mind right now are Massachusetts, New York, and Maine. Um, we have projects right now in, in process um, at, at various stages. And private land work is a little funny just because you can't, you got to be careful about, you know, talking too early about, you know, who, what, what, what you're working on because it is a, these are private um, deals and, and you got to respect the privacy of landowners. But you know, um, there's a pretty exciting project in southwestern Massachusetts that um, may be completed by the time this podcast airs. But um, when it, we feel pretty good that it's gonna, it's gonna, we're gonna cross the finish line with this one, and um, it really might be one of the most exciting um, climbing finds um, in the Northeast in a long time. Um, it's a, it's a cliff line that has seen limited to no development. Um, it's on private property and. Um, the uh, local climbers have um, have worked out a deal with for subdividing the property, and they're kind of going through the process of getting that all approved through the local uh, municipality and, and kind of getting things across the finish line. So that's going to involve a access fund loan as well as um, a collaboration between the Western Mass Climbers Coalition and Ragged Mountain Foundation. So feeling pretty good about that one. Can't really give too much more detail about that because it's it's not not quite there yet, but um, that one's an exciting one. Like I say, when it, when it goes the way we think it's going to, it's going to be a big deal here in the region. And then similarly in New York, we've been working with the Gunks Climbers Coalition on another private land purchase. Um, that one's been a little bit more hung up in some uh, planning board um, issues and, and just trying to, it's a very complicated real estate transaction, involves three different landowners. So it's, um, it's, uh, it's a little more tricky, um, definitely not as... Um, not as a sure thing or um, as perhaps this, this Southwest Massachusetts project, but continue to push on it. And um, actually I'm hoping to have a little more information today um, about kind of the trajectory of the project. Um, there were some meetings, there was a planning board meeting last night um, there. So we're, we're kind of waiting to waiting to see how that all played out and give a better sense of where that's going, but that'll be a, that'll be a, that'll be a significant one as well. Um, kind of two big projects and kind of the, the southern part of the region, if you will, if you, and, and thinking about the Northeast. And then um, in Maine, um, you got a, there's a, a couple pretty pretty prolific, or not prolific, but prominent climbing areas in Western Maine that 
um, I'm working with two different land trusts uh, to investigate uh, purchasing, uh, working with them to preserve it. Um, and uh, one of them will actually, if we're successful, would be a pretty significant landscape conservation project. It'll you know, encompass multiple thousands of acres of, of forest land, as well as um, a very beautiful uh, granite cliff and, a, and some ice climbing. So um, really just those are ones to just kind of stay tuned on. Um, these sorts of projects can take, you know, many years uh, and, they ha- and they rely on, uh, you know, a willing private landowner. So they're always kind of um, finicky. And, and like Seth kind of mentioned, you're kind of you're building relationships and you're just kind of dealing with different the different aspects of each landowner's personality and interests um, on these projects. So they just kind of, they kind of ebb and flow and some, you know, it's it's a lot of hurry up and wait. And then all of a sudden you're sprinting to the finish. So um, (laughs) these sorts of projects. So that's those. And then the one that um, kind of the big one in Maine that came around um, has been kind of on everybody's radar in Southern Maine is this place called the Bradbury boulders. It's kind of this prime example of what happens when, Prime example of, of why we work so hard to to acquire um, private lands when they come up for sale. Um, basically, you had a situation where there was a private landowner that was allowing access, and then um, in twenty early twenty seventeen, I believe it was, it might have been late twenty sixteen, the uh, the private landowner uh, sold the land to another another uh, individual um, and didn't tell anybody they were doing this. It wasn't on the climbing community's radar. And then all of a sudden, um, they got an email from the from the former landowner saying, "Hey, we sold the property, and here are your here's the contact for the new landowners. Oh man, best wishes, <laughs> essentially." Um, and the new landowners actually closed closed the property um, almost immediately. And we've now since then, you know, made several attempts to reach out to them and and try to, you know, uh, broker a conversation around reestablishing access and um, to, to no avail, unfortunately, they haven't shown much interest in, in sitting down and talking about their concerns and, and investigating solutions. So that's still on our radar. The Bradbury boulders are uh, are super important climbing resource in the region. And um, it's like I say, it's kind of a poster child for why we work so hard to, to pursue these properties when we have the opportunity. Right. What about uh, anything going on with the um, Thatcher State Park? Um, Thatcher, they're, they're kicking butt over there. They, we have a great coalition, the Thatcher Climbers Coalition. Um, they have a great relationship with New York State Parks. We actually I had a chance to meet with uh, the park uh, manager and a regional director from New York State Parks um, last year. And they were just super enthusiastic about climbers in the park. They, they've been blown away by the, by the use, um, just in terms of numbers of folks showing up, um, which for Thatcher, a little bit of the backstory there is they that park had kind of fallen um, kind of out of popularity with the general, you know, part usership of the region. Thatcher sits just west of Albany. And it used to be a very popular place for families to go and swim. Um, they, they, had a, they had a pool um, on the park. And apparently the, the pool uh, developed a crack and drained. <laughs> and they, were, they never fixed the pool. And that kind of that kind of was the end of Thatcher's popularity. And so um, the park went through some redevelopment, some, pl- re, you know, some planning and this, um, it was kind of just, um, good timing that there was some, um, engaged advocates, um, in the region at the time that worked, worked with the access fund and the park to kind of put this proposal together for developing climbing. And I don't think anybody really believed, uh, in state parks that, um, you know, the, the climbing at Thatcher would take off and be a way to kind of, 
bringing bring popularity back to this park, but it really has. Um, so they're super enthusiastic about what's going on there, and they're looking at opportunities for new routes to go in and um, expand some access. And we're investigating. There's some little like inholdings of private property that kind of shoot up to the cliff line, and so we're, we're kind of um, looking into those um, and seeing what we can do to kind of add more more uh, more climbing to that to that area. All right. Well, you got plenty on your plate, that's for sure. Thanks for. Thanks for the updates from uh, three different yeah. states. Uh, I'm about to add a fourth here in just a sec, but yeah. I don't want to say most important, but perhaps the one that's most you know uh, under the radar, or excuse me, not under the radar, but under the spotlight is what's going on at Rumney. I mean, Access Fund's got a big campaign going on right now called Restore Rumney. Mm-hmm. What's going on there? What are, you, what are you dealing with at Rumney? So Rumney, yeah, Rumney is probably the most popular uh, sport climbing area in the Northeast. Um, it's uh, it's just you know thirty eight crags spread across Rattlesnake Mountain, um, and it just sees a tremendous amount of use. And so out of that use, much like we see across the country, this isn't a new phenomenon by any means, um, but we're seeing a lot of impacts um, on our trails. And it's you know it's a combination of things, right? It's people showing up and using the place, but it's also the fact that these trails, these staging areas were never actually laid out and designed in any fashion. And so there's been some, you know, there's been good efforts over the years by volunteers and the forest service to, to pick away at some, some of the low hanging fruit um, to, to address erosion issues and, and really uh, start to shore up some of the trails, but there's some big projects um, that just the, the forest service hasn't had capacity to, to tackle um, and the local, and really they were larger than what a volunteer, um, effort could really address. And so I guess it was early last year, we had a, we had a sit down with, uh, the forest service, uh, Rumney climbers association and other, uh, I think the American Alpine club was there cause they own the campground across the street now. And we were just kind of doing, it was basically a, a stakeholders meeting. We were just kind of going through the climbing management plan, talking about what was going well, what, you know, maybe what issues, some issues that might've cropped up here and there and how we could nip them in the bud. And towards the end of uh, the meeting, we, you know, the, they mentioned uh, this kind of these trail projects that um, the forest service had identified um, these needs back in 2009, um, you know, places like the meadows and, uh, the main cliff and triple corners and parking lot wall. Um, and from the locals, you know, orange crush was a priority as well. And, and so all those sites had gone through the, you know, the NEPA compliance process, which was for us, you know, and thinking about conservation work, our biggest hurdle oftentimes is kind of navigating the, the compliance process on, on federal public land. And so the fact that this, these areas have been cleared for, for work, but there was, there just wasn't the, the, the resources um, available to get the work done and be kind of languishing. Um, you know, we, we stepped up and said, hey, you know, we have, we have the crews and the expertise and the knowledge to, to do this work. Let's, uh, let's get together and form a plan. And so over the course of, of last year, we had some meetings in the field and, and a little bit of email back and forth and developed this plan for, for addressing the, the, um, the infrastructure improvement needs um, at, at, those, at some of these popular sites at Rumney. And what we're working on right now, you know, is just the tip of the iceberg. There's plenty more to do, but we're just trying to take, you know, take small bites, but in a somewhat of a um, kind of systematic fashion. Well, being on the conservation team prior to this, I'm sure you're, you're set up pretty well for success to get this thing underway. Yeah, you know, it's 
you know, conservation is what brought me to the Access Fund. I mean, my 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 background as a park ranger, um, you know, my first experience with the Access Fund was actually working um, in public land management and, and working to manage climbing access uh, on the Front Range of Colorado, and um, you know, helped organize the first Adopt a Crag um, on Jefferson County open space lands back in 2011, I think it was, uh, maybe 2010 even. Um, at the, at the uh, cathedral spires down on the South Platte. Mm-hmm. And so that was my first real introduction to the Access Fund. And, and, and like I say, my, my background is in conservation. So, um, yeah, I get pretty passionate about um, uh, being able to get out and, and uh, you know, tackle these stewardship needs um, at our climbing areas here in the Northeast. Yeah, that's great. So there is a Rumney stewardship plan. I think it's over, is it over the course of two years. Yeah, that's right. So uh, we have our East Coast uh, conservation team on the ground right now, Matt and Annie, um, and then our, actually our national team rolled into town last week, and they're here for a couple of weeks before they roll up to Camden, Maine for a, for a weekend project. But um, right now, Matt and Annie um, have been working with a, a AmeriCorps crew uh, to tackle um, a, a pretty incredible uh, staircase um, at the Orange Crush Wall, and basically it's it was this eroding slope. Um, that just was a mess and people were kicking rocks down and, and um, climbers kind of on the slope below. And it was just this continuously eroding ish, uh, eroding, you know, hillside. And, and, um, at the top of this dirt, um, slope is, uh, a, a slab with some ladders that people use to access some climbs further up on the cliff. And those ladders were getting higher and higher, um, in the air, if you will, as the soil, eroded away. And so, uh, Matt and Annie have been, I don't even, I don't know the actual, uh, step count, but they're going to finish it, finish it up this week, but it's going to be huge. Um, and that's going to address really a pretty critical issue that local climbers identified, um, as a need. So that, that project, um, is going to be almost exactly, uh, it's going to be about two months of, of, um, hard labor <laughs> to get this thing done. Um, but it's, it's, it's looking incredible. Um, and we're getting really good feedback from the community as they're seeing this work getting done. And then um, right now uh, we're starting to pick away um, on the meadows. And so once the stair set at Orange Crush is wrapped up, um, Matt and Annie will, will shift over to the meadows and then we'll uh, tackle the parking lot wall, um, kind of round up the year, kind of a smaller little project. And then, yeah, next year um, our goal is to come back and, um, and tackle the main cliff and the 5-8 crag. And, and so we're looking at three months um, of work uh, this year and three months of work next year. Nice. Right on. So you're dealing with trails, uh, you know, the staircases, staging areas. And then Seth also made a little plug for parking. Is yeah. there anything you want to touch on there? Well, you know, I think it, it all ties into, like Seth mentioned, you know, it's I think some of our biggest challenges as the sport is growing is we're just facing a lot of the issues that any popular park or destination faces, you know, I mean, there's a, there's a place here in the Mount Washington Valley called Diana's bath. It's a popular walk, um, for folks and it's, that place is overflowing. And, and so it's, it's a pretty common issue on public lands outside of climbing to, you right. know, management of, of trails and trailhead, um, you know, access and provide enough space and, and figuring out how much space is enough, how much, you know, at what point do you kind of, um, do you start to, you know, intentionally create lots to, to manage use? And I don't know what the right answer is at Rumney. I know that, um, you know, we've added a, uh, another parking lot recently 
um, with the acquisition of what we call the final frontier, kind of the final 86 acres of, of land on the, on the northwest um, side of Rattlesnake Mountain encompasses quite a few uh, cliffs. Currently, it's owned by the Rumney Climbers Association. And so they, they, um, they added a parking lot. Um, and then the, um, the, with the American Alpine Club uh, purchasing the Rattlesnake Campground across the street, um, they've they provided some uh, additional day use parking um, at the at the parking lot. Gotcha. So um, we're you know we're I think that's helped a lot. You know the addition of that Rumney Climbers Association lot and the Alpine Club land, and um, and then just the ability to uh, you know when we purchased that that Final Frontier park property, the ability to kind of direct people in that direction on busy days. I think it's helping to spread use out a bit. But you know I think. More than more than use numbers, I think in terms of our stewardship needs when it comes to trails, it really comes down more to the fact that the trails were never just properly properly laid out and, and designed and managed. So that's what we're trying to get our arms wrapped around, so they can they can absorb the use we're throwing at them. Right. Yeah. Retroactively getting things done. Yeah. <laughs> it's unfortunate, but it is the way it is, I guess. Currently, you know, there's there's examples of of um, that sh- that kind of that paradigm shifting, right? I mean, there's, um, there's kind of that, there's some models out there in the red. Um, I worked on a project out in Colorado when I lived out there where we, we built the trails before the climbers showed up, Mm -hmm. um, at at Staunton state park. And, and so I think that's starting to come around. I think as our sport is maturing, um, as becoming more popular as land managers are becoming more comfortable and under with climbing and understanding that it's a, you know, it's a legitimate use and it's, and it, and it can be a, a great addition to, to a to a park, they're more uh, enthusiastic about working with with climbers to to kind of lay things out in more of a systematic fashion. It just makes things easier in the end. Yeah, I'm currently working on a stabilization report for my area because we're going through and going to have to retroactively update trails and staging areas and whatnot because they weren't exactly laid out um, for climbing either. Yeah. So yeah, I feel you there. I'm I'm fully in it right now, and I was talking to. Uh, one of the engine, uh, civil engineer at the Gunnison Ranger District here talking about parking and bathrooms and stuff. And he brought up the point of capacity. Like you can add, you just keep adding parking spaces and they just keep filling up. Like when, right. when has a spot just reached its capacity? So yeah. it's, it's a balance, yeah. it's a fine line to walk. It is. And I don't, yeah, it's a, it's one that people grapple with. I mean, I, I dealt with it when I was working uh, in public land management, you know, it was differing opinions on what, you know, how big to build a parking lot and the idea of carrying capacity when it comes to numbers of people on the land. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this, it's, it's, it's kind of a great debate in public sure. land management, even yep. internally. Yep. Absolutely. Well, you, you, you just mentioned that the forest service and has been very open and, and uh, working with climbers and, and so forth. I, you know, the, I, I assume your experience working with the forest service at Romney has been, has been supportive and been great. And how, how about your other partners in this project? Yeah, um, you know the for just I'll just put a plug in. The Forest Service has been amazing. Um, they've been providing staff to come out and support the teams um, intermittently. They're you know we're talking to them about you know getting materials delivered from their construction crews as they make you know some of the sites at Romney don't have a lot of building material available on site. We, were, we always endeavor to to build with rock um, whenever possible. So. Um, they're really helping us out. And they've also provided a, a little over $10,000 in wow. uh, funding for materials. We are going to eventually have to buy some, you know, maybe buy some stone. There is, there is actually a timber wall we will, we will be building 
to replace um, one at the five eight crags. So that, that's going to cost some money. So we have we have that support from them, which has been great. But then additionally, yeah, the Rumney Climbers Association. Um, I've worked with a couple of folks on the board directly, but the broader board as well um, to apply for some grants that, um, and then um, just try to you know uh, spread the word as much as possible. But the grant writing's been the big one. They've um, I've been working with uh, one of their board members to you know been applying to various grants. Some um, one we've just recently got word we received. We're waiting to be able to announce that with the with the grant maker. Um, and then, um, we're waiting to hear back on a few. So, um, and then, uh, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't call out Sterling Rope. Um, they've been a, a long time partner with the Access Fund. Um, but when I came here to the Northeast in 2017, we immediately started talking about, you know, how we could collaborate and work together and, uh, and, you know, a greater capacity. And prior to Rumney, we started, um, we started working, um, at Cathedral Ledge, um, on some trail work projects and, and Sterling came on immediately um, and provided provided funding funding for um, for trip for some staging area improvements we did at the north end um, of Cathedral, as well as um, last year we built a, a pretty significant granite staircase um, up around a what's called the prow um, and uh, replaced a, a a timber uh, staircase that had rotted and actually failed. Um, kind of detached from its footings and slid down the hill. So Sterling stepped up early on and they've been continuing to do that um, at, with Rumney, um, providing the initial, um, one of the first donations we got for the project. And it's cool because, you know, Sterling's a climbing company uh, in terms of the rope and whatnot, but they're also, you know, they're, they're, they work a lot in the uh, rope access space. And, and so our work on the conservation team side of things, um, you know, there's it, a lot of rigging that goes on. We're using pulleys and, static lines to haul rocks on big cable high lines. Uh, and so our, um, our conservation team really fits, kind of checks both boxes for Sterling. We have, you know, we're improving climbing areas and we're, we're working in this um, the work side of their product line. And so um, it's been a really cool partnership um, to be able to get, you know, really great Sterling gear um, and equipment to get our work done. Um, and, but also get that um, an injection of cash, which is super, important. Um, the work isn't free. You know, I was thinking about it the other day, this, this orange crush staircase took two months. Um, and we're looking at this year, um, the three months of work just with staffing and between our conservation teams and, um, the AmeriCorps crew we have on site, we're looking at about a $60,000, you know, fundraising need for this year. And if you can, if you kind of break that out in three months, that, that staircase at orange crush is about a $40,000 staircase. Whoa. Um, and so it's, yeah. Wow. Right. <laughs> and so, um, and when you look at the staircase, you know, frankly, you can, I, it helps wrap your mind around, you know, I guess the, um, what these things cost. Um, and, it, and you look at it, you're like, okay, I can, I mean, for me anyway, it's somewhat, you know, tangible. It's like, wow, this is a pretty significant piece of stonework. And I think I'm hopeful that, you know, we're, we're working, um, another good partner, um, we're working with central rock gym to put together a, um, promotional video about this this work uh, they've also been a financial supporter and um i'm going to be working with a local uh photographer who has the permits to to fly a drone um on national forest land um and we're going to try to capture some of the work that's been done and is going on um we're producing a we're producing a kind of a, a short video uh to kind of highlight the work and um i'm hoping to be able to 
do get some shots of this staircase to really because it's hard you know you take a you take a photo from from different vantage points and these we're using native stone so it kind of by design blends in but i think if we get above this thing and, and kind of fly over it it'll really kind of demonstrate just how what a really epic piece of, of craft craftsmanship this, this stone staircase is and that's what we're endeavoring to do across across these different areas we're working is put, put together some really high quality work that will you know withstand the test of time but will also uh, blend into the landscape. So in a year or two, when you show up at Orange Crush or the main cliff, you'll, I mean, you, it'll look good, but it won't necessarily be glaring that there were these significant improvements made. Right. You wanted to get to blend in as much as possible and just look, yeah, look organic, look natural. Yeah. I mean, the best, best trail work is the trail work you don't notice. Boom. Um, I love it. Kind of how I, <laughs> I oftentimes say. So uh, whenever I, yeah, you know, and when you first build something, you know, you've turned up a lot of dirt and the rock is fresh. And so it tends right. to be kind of, tends to stand out. But yeah, after a year or two, uh, especially here in the Northeast, um, things really start to naturalize and it's, it's pretty, pretty rewarding. You know, I was, uh, I got an email the other day actually from somebody just commending us on our, the North End work that we did a couple of years ago. It's, everything's got ferns growing in places, you know, that were getting beaten down before mm-hmm. and. Uh, the rock work has, has really weathered in nicely and people are now no longer standing in a gully to belay on the classic finger crack. They died laughing. So yeah. everyone's psyched. <laughs> nice. Right on. Um, is there any way that uh, people can donate to this project uh, specifically or help out? Uh, help yeah, out so absolutely. Um, and it's really, frankly, pretty critical um, that we continue to mobilize the community. We've had, I think, over just over 200 um, donations come in. But we're only sitting at about twenty thousand dollars right now in our uh, on the fundraising campaign. And as I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know we're looking at a minimum. We have to raise sixty thousand this year to to just pay for the work that's going to be done this year. And so um, there's it's if you go to our current camp campaigns page um, on the Access Fund website, um, you can you can find the Restore Romney link, and that'll take you to the to the page and there's a, there's a portal to, to donate and, you know, people that have questions can reach out to me as well. We're, we're, we're really, um, I'm really hoping that we can, we can rally the community on the latter half of the year here. Um, whether it's individual donors, major donors, or, um, you know, corporate donors, um, to, to get us, you know, to the, to our minimum goal for this year of 60,000, but hopefully beyond that, because, you know, we, we have to think critically about next year and what our, what our funding situation is, and um, you know, we have we have some funds earmarked for next year, but not nearly enough to get what done what we want to get done. And so, I'm hopeful that people will see the work we're getting done, getting getting get, get excited, and um, and help us kind of reach our overall goal. I mean, the total goal for the project is around one hundred and fifty-five thousand um, dollars. So, definitely, yeah, definitely. Try, um, really need um some community support to keep this going we've you know we've been we've been shaking every tree we can find you know applying for grants and whatnot and we'll continue to do that but mm-hmm. that community support we have a huge population here in the new, in new england especially in southern new england that that utilize uh Romney pretty regularly so um you know if we can get we get most of those people you know contributing even just a little bit i think we could we could get pretty close to our to our fundraising goal Cool. All right. Well, I'll do what I can to put the plug out there to bring it, bring it to people's attention and everything, and and be sure to link that up in the show notes to the uh, Restore Remedy page on Access Fund website. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind bet. of the the biggest. It's really the kind of the, one of the larger projects. Kind of like 
on my shoulders right now. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it feels yeah. pretty good to make some headway on the fundraising. All right, Mike. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to discuss here, bring up about the Northeast? You know, I, 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 I can't think of anything off the top of my head. You know, there's aside from the projects we talked about, you know, there's many other things going on um, across, across the region. Every state, I have projects in various stages across the region. So, you know, if there's ever, if people listening, if you're in Pennsylvania or New Jersey or elsewhere and you have questions about what we're working on, you know, I'm always happy to jump on the phone or, or answer an email. Um, and my, all my contact info is, is on the Access Fund website. So, and certainly, you know, if there are, um, if there's an access issue um, or, a, or a project of any type that revolves around conservation of climate site or, um, you know, in that, in that realm, um, reach out. Let's, uh, let's get in touch and see what we can get done. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, Mike, for joining me for this awesome conversation. I'm so psyched on it. I took away a lot. I hope you all did. Um, Thank you so much, you guys, for your great work and representing the Northeast. I know that the Eastern model with uh, conservation easements and acquisitions with private landowners can be a little uh, confusing and muddy, but it is effective. And if you want to learn more, I'm sure Seth will be Happy to talk to you about it. So reach out if you want to learn some more about that model. Um, Like I said, it's not like it doesn't exist out west, but it certainly is more prominent in the east. Let's get some funding for Mike, huh? Visit the Restore Rumney campaign page on Access Fund's website. It's on the homepage, and it can also be found under Take Action and the Campaigns tab. You can donate directly to the project there. And you know, Christmas is only a few months away. The holidays are only a few months away. How about a little early, little something, something for Mike and, and the Northeast team? It's never too, never too soon to throw them a few bucks. They're about a third of the way there for their funding goal for the year. So let's help them, let's help them push them across the finish line. That's all I, I think that, that's all I got for this episode. Uh, I hope you really, I hope you guys really enjoyed it as as much as I did. And I will catch you all here again in a few weeks.